the most important asset of this planet, life form, doesn't have a digital twin today. And most surgeries or medical procedures that happen almost happens with the risk that it's going to work the first time. And if not, you take that risk regardless because there is no other alternative. And that's the potential that digital twinning brings. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the Mayo Challenge podcast, brought to you by the University of Twente's Robotics Center. My name is Annick van Damme, and I'm here together with the manager of that center and my co-host, Steven van Roon. Hello. Hello. Together with you, we are unlocking the secrets of digital human twins. With the use of AI, can we build digital brains to master complex movements in a virtual body? In the previous episode, you've heard all about the who, the what and the why in developing Mayo Suite and Mayo Challenge. In this episode, we will double tap on the technology itself. It's the digital twinning methodology. We'll discuss the enormous potentials and the realistic challenges with the most brilliant experts on the planet that are driving this technology forward every single day. Well, I do hope they have some days off too, Annick. <laughs> Maybe they can put their digital twin at work while relaxing. In this series, you'll hear the initiators of this project. First, let us introduce you to Vikash Kumar. He works as an adjunct professor at the American Carnegie Mellon University. His focus always has been to understand the fundamentals of movement and digital twins. A digital twin is basically a mirror image of the reality, but in the digital world. And we create digital twin for a lot of different reasons. Not all exercise or experiments can be done in the physical world without a reasonable amount of cost and risk. So having a digital twin allows us to make those experiments without the risk and without the cost. And this leads us to much better position in terms of either hypothesis we want to test in the real world or some decisions we want to make in the real world. And this is a very standard technique at this point with the advancement of computers and internet. Everything has a digital re replica or digital world. For example, you want to create uh, a house you have a CAD model of the house, you look at it, and then you make it. Uh, even stock markets have sort of some kind of a simulation going on. So you learn using those simulations, but the most important asset of this planet, life form, doesn't have a digital twin today. And most surgeries or medical procedures that happen almost happens with the risk that it's going to work the first time. And if not, you take that risk regardless because there is no other alternative. And that's the potential that digital twinning brings, that it allows us the playground in which we can first experiment and then bring it to the real world, the right kind of hypothesis to act on. So using digital twins for enhancing healthcare is faster, cheaper, and let's not forget, less invasive for patients. I'd say using digital humans is more humane. Stephen and I hit up with another Mayo Suite and Mayo Challenge founder. In 2020, he works as AI research lead at Meta AI, but not anymore. No, no, actually I left Meta to focus full time on the development of Mayo Suite. So we've got a super AI expert now dedicating his work life on bringing Mayo Suite further. 
We talked to Vittorio Caggiano, based in New York, to get a better understanding of the tech that's involved. We, we talk about AI being used in MyoSuite, but what AI exactly? We talk about machine learning, but what exactly? So in the current formulation, MyoSuite has been targeting to a initial machine learning that is called reinforcement learning. That is the way to learn basically by trial and error. And the idea to use reinforcement learning as the first instance of that learning approach is that the question that we were going after to start with was, can we, if we constrain a, a simulation to the same human constraints that are actuating the world through muscle and the musculoskeletal system, can we evolve the same coordination of muscle like humans do? So can we generate motor behavior through muscle actuation like humans do? And humans do that work, basically they learn pattern and error. So let's start providing that same constraints and ask the system if it can learn in the same way that humans do. In the end, we show that actually if we start using these constraints plus similar way that humans learn, you get similar results in terms of coordination of behavior. Uh, i give you the example that actually was one of the examples that we show in scientific publication. If you learn to manipulate objects like uh, grabbing a bottle of water, shaking it, the toy to move it around, um, and you learn this set of tasks. Now, if I give you a new object, a duck, a rubber duck, and I tell you to lift it, and you don't have the tactile information, so you don't know how heavy the, the duck is or how slippery the, task, the, the duck is. You know lifting is something that you know how to do, and you will immediately grab the duck to lift it. But maybe the duck slides away because it's slippery, or the weight is too high despite to the weight that you are grabbing. So that is a limitation of the generalization. But what happens as a human? If you get a couple of trials, then you are able to grab that duck because you learn what are the small differences to adapt to that movement. Now, that is the limitation, again, because in the beginning you didn't know about that, so you need much more information or being able to have generalize, for example, okay, I know that the duck might, the new object might have different weight, different configuration, so you need to have some other priors, but at the same time, you can learn the new task as well if you get some exposure. Humans are quite fast as well, because we, even if we prepare that it might be different than we expect, then we probably are quicker in adapting and still lifting it first time. Uh, but if we don't know what to expect and we assume, then it might go wrong. But yeah, we are quite great computers, by the way. So we, we, we have a lot of sensory information and know how to process that based on our library as well. And that's the beauty for me of the human system, that we are able to integrate so much information and then we stack that over the experience and we create this really generalizable machinery that allows us at least to expose ourselves to new tasks and learn quickly new things. And this is really unique of humans. I mean, if you do this in robotics, you have huge limitation. And one reason can be that you don't have enough exposure because you need to have a life, basically, of exposure in order to generalize. The other can be also how the system is embodied. Our system is actually highly redundant. We have more muscle than number of bones. We have a lot of sensory information that is spread dense and, and, and uh, less dense depending on which part of the body, like the fingertip, respect to your palm. So our system is built with reflexes in the center. So it's built in a way to be adaptable by design. 
And that probably is something that we often like ignore that we are not intelligent because we suddenly one day we read a lot of books and we have developed intelligence understanding of the world, but because we get continuously exposed to the world, we learn from the world and we learn from others. We look at others, how they do things. We learn how they behave in the world. And that exposure is the key to learn. So the models in MyoSuite and MyoChallenge are inspired by how humans learn. Reinforcement learning allows an AI-driven system to learn through trial and error, using feedback from its actions. Even a young child is already building a library of experiences. But Vikash Kumar, with his extensive knowledge about the intersection between robotics AI and digital twinning, tells us AI is not just a copy of how we humans generate movement. So by mimic, if, uh, if you mean puppeteer the same set of joint angles in order to, to make the same movements, so the AI does not work like that. It is trying to understand what is the fundamental construct that are leading to those behavior, and then it tries to emulate that behavior by itself, right? And the way it understands what those fundamental constructs are is through data that it actually tries multiple times to do something similar and fails sometimes succeeds so it it develops a holistic understanding of what it means to do a certain task and in some cases it will fail and in some cases it will fumble and some cases will succeed and it looks at the entire diversity of the data to understand the effects and repercussions of every decision and this is where Maya Suite comes into play because we have this digital twin digital playground that even if you make bad bad decisions you see the repercussion of these decisions you observe it and then you start making decisions that like doing better of this and less of this worst part is what we want yeah unless you know what the risk is you don't know how to avoid it so you have to see the failures too what is a bad decision? What is a failure from Kumar's point of view? Well, it's the difference between dropping the slippery rubber duck or holding it. To pinpoint his answer, we don't go from modeling individual corexes in the brain or individual networks in the spinal cord because of the simple reason we have too many neurons in our brain and spine. It's way too complex. AI can provide a faster track to that. At the University of Twente, Stefan and I meet with the third founder of the Mayo Suite. Professor Massimo Sartori explains that this is where the Mayo Challenge, the competition for teams from all over the world to join, is definitely adding value. Rather than modeling each individual neuron, we can actually learn how a neural network would orchestrate such a complex movement. And what, what we have seen in the, in the Mayo Challenge, we were successful at reproducing many complex movements that would not be possible to reproduce just using the traditional paradigm. Yeah. Yes, I think that we can already use this, this technique to study, for example, the so-called muscle synergies. That's a paradigm of control that our brain uses. It basically controls muscles in groups rather than controlling muscles individually. That would be too computationally expensive for our brain because we have you know, 700, 800 muscles in our body. Like jumping, for example. For example, jumping, yes, but or, or, or walking. So our brain simplifies the complexity by controlling muscles in groups. And uh, with MyoSuite, you can study whole body synergy. So you can actually, for the first time, understand how 800 muscles are actually orchestrated simultaneously 
for a specific movement. So that would be relevant for neuroscience, for example. Yeah. Basically, it's like self-steering teams in organizations. Yes. You just give the assignment and they figure out on a more local level, in, in this case your muscles, how to, uh, to, to do the move, perform the move. Exactly, exactly. So let's say you've been in a car crash and your lower limb had to be amputated. Then it could help doctors and other specialists involved if we have a library of human movements and how they are generated just as natural as our own brains would do. Well, there is such a library, that's MyoSuite. Now filled with models of the human arms, hands, legs and even full body models. And each year there is MyoChallenge to extend that library. This can help to bridge the gap between lab research and the clinical practice. This can enable to build applications such as myoprosthetics upon. These are prosthetics that have motors and batteries on board to power the movement connected to the residual limb. Myo is Greek for muscles. Steven and I asked the expert in neuromechanical engineering about the biggest challenge to date. Well, um, right now what we have seen from the past uh, challenge and also what we're seeing from this year's challenge is that yes, we're able to generate movements from scratch in simulation. However, those movements, they are still a little bit off. They are not really realistic. That's one layer. And the second layer is, even if we got to the stage of making visually realistic movements, what about the behavior of the underlying muscles? Is that going to be physiologically plausible? Is that going to be physiologically correct? And what if we now switch to the simulations of a patient? Are those simulations capturing uh, the abnormality in the patient's way of controlling their muscles? So right now, the biggest challenge is realism from a biomechanical point of view and from a neurophysiological point of view. That lack of realism strikes me. If I have a look at the demo on the MyoSuite website, the models that I see are far from realistic. I see bones, and yes, red lines surrounding the bones are muscles, but there is no tissue, no other textural representation or whatsoever. I talked to Vikash Kumar about that realism, and he basically tells me to be a bit more patient. This is just the beginning, and the timing is absolutely perfect right now, because there are different research directions that are starting to converge. And this was the, the reason we actually started the MyoSuite platform and the project, that we understood the current space is quite fragmented. People in biomechanics only focus on biomechanical details. People in neuroscience, we're only looking at neuroscientific decision-making. People in vision, we're only looking at photorealistic rendering. And this is where the MyoSuite comes in, that it is basically the platform that sits in the middle and it's trying to draw these different disjoint communities together. And we have already seen great traction in MyoSuite as well as MyoChallenge because this is one of the most widely competed challenge we are running right now is MyoChallenge. And people from different worlds, different subfields, different groups are coming together and making rapid advancements. Kumar foresees progression in so many fields with AI as an enabler for better healthcare. But there are new roads to explore on this adventure. Like Sartori mentioned before when we were talking about challenges ahead, can we capture the abnormality in patients' way of controlling their muscles? 
Let's say you have a very characteristic way of walking, or you have a certain thing you always do with your hands. Can that be captured? That's a really interesting question, Zen. This highlights the fact that it's really a multidisciplinary challenge. So it's not only about building computer models that are computationally fast and then training them with neural networks, but you do always have to validate them in parallel. And this means actually still measuring, uh, extracting information from, from, from real persons and to really compare if a real person's neuromuscular system is behaving like what the simulation is predicting. Um, and, and so I think that that's another challenge if you want, uh, because to achieve this, it means bridging between multiple communities, computer scientists, engineers, as well as movement scientists and biomedical engineers. And I think we will need more and more of this in the future as the field of AI develops. Do you already do these checks in your lab, or is Absolutely. that a, bla a black spot left? Absolutely, no. We pay huge emphasis on validating our models. That's the thing that we care the most. We, we are not necessarily interested in generating visually appealing simulations. That would be most uh, the goal of graphics um, type of research. But we actually do want to use the simulations for diagnosis, for the design of wearable robots, for the control, uh, for the brain control of wearable robots. So our simulations need to be extremely accurate. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Sartori sees multiple benefits of working with AI and digital twins, not only from a robotics point of view, but also to enhance the AI itself. We think that uh, human movement is can serve as a new benchmark to basically advance the design of AI infrastructures. There's a lot of research that's been doing on, on language and large language models have been used uh, successfully and ChatGPT is an example of that and the use case is really language learning, the mechanisms of language. In Mayo Suite we actually uh, use movements and we think that this can represent a new benchmark. The human body as a new benchmark to bring AI further, cast in a global competition, the Mayo Challenge, brought together in the platform Mayo Suite. But there are always two sides of the medal. The enormous amounts of energy needed to perform a lot of AI-based research. How should we balance that? This planet is nothing but a delicate balance between different forces. If any of the forces goes or scales to a level that it will imbalance other forces, that is reason for concern. And this is what you're alluding to right now, that there are two forces at play, is one, the human scientific curiosity, where we really want to understand things and hopefully, based on that understanding, bring positive changes in the world. And on the other hand, we need resources as well to make that happen, right? And in order to maintain the delicate balance, you can only push as much as the resources will allow you to push. And everything, every journey in the human civilization has started with resources not being as efficiently used in the beginning because we do not understand them as well. And once the understanding kicks in, we also optimize and be efficient and resourceful about the budget of resources that we have. For example, when the initial combustion engine came in, the efficiency of that engine wasn't as high. But if you look at today, 
we make it really, really well, and we are still improving. In the same way, the AI models today are probably using a lot of energy is just because we don't know what is the right way to make the judicious use of that energy or the data. We know today the scaling helps, so we are pressing in the direction that is helpful to us. But soon to come, my speculations and honest belief is that these models are going to get much more personalized. They are going to get much smaller and they're going to serve the use cases that we have in a much more efficient way, in a much less of an energy plus every other footprint they have. And again, Kumar is testing our patience. When we talk to Kajano about this topic, he comes with a totally different approach. Let's direct the finger towards ourselves. If we tackle a problem from a human level, rather than trying to create something completely artificial and then bring back to human level, do we need the same computing? That for me is engineering. And that's fine, but that is the problem. So let's look in the other ways. I mean, we know that humans do not consume so much energy. Maybe in the lifespan, they might reach some level. So that is the question to say, well, actually, I mean, why are we power efficient in some ways respect to a computer? The building of digital twins is in full swing and the possibilities of applications that can enhance valid and impaired persons seem endless. In episode one and four, you hear a lot about these applications. But when it comes to gathering lots of data on how our brains work, maybe it can give an uncomfortable feeling that big global corporates like Google and Meta are involved. I asked Kumar about this collaboration between industry and academic world. The top level layer of this is smart, unique individuals have to come together. Now, the second point, obviously, for them to come together, there has to be a forcing function. And there are two forcing functions that has worked quite well today. One is the academic forcing function, and the second is the industrial or research forcing function. And this goes from like academic institutions, we can name all of them, MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, everywhere, internationally as well. And the second is academic, uh, the, the industry part of it, Bell Labs, Xerox Park, the examples go, go deep and deep. But these are just forcing functions to build communities together. And it has been long debated and well established that the right kind of collaboration is academia and industry collaboration. But academia can take much more risk. They can think out much farther where the repercussions of a mistake could be lower because there is not that high stakes. And they can be much more careful and deliberate about certain uh, decisions because their decisions are not tied to some socioeconomic outcomes. So that's where academia can be very, very advantageous. And they also have access to this talented pool of students that are just coming up with mind-blowing ideas every other day. On the other hand, industry comes into the play where industry can work with certain guidelines, but they have massive uh, execution force. Right. So when it comes to massive undertaking, but the undertaking has some risks and risks need to be factored in both from the standpoint of safety, but as well as financial and socioeconomic decisions, then industry might become a better place because they have the right guidelines, they have the right execution power. And that's why it's long debated and well-established that academic plus industry partnership 
actually does wonders, but we need to pair it with the right kind of questions. Talking with these bright minds with this track record, both from the industry side and the academic side, I am curious for their drive and motivation. I ask Vittorio Caggiano, who has so much knowledge on artificial intelligence and neuroscience, when he thinks this project has succeeded. If we were able to create um, an opportunity for a medical doctor or a practitioner in a remote and unprivileged place to provide information about a patient's status and understand specific disease uh, at the muscle or motor level, um, that for me would be uh, success. That I would feel that all this work and all the experience that we put into this effort will have made a significant impact. Well, Stephen, that were interesting conversations, right? I mean, these interviews left me with an awe of my own human body and how it works, especially of how we learn from the moment we are born and try to reach something I'm gathering data to build upon. Definitely. And what I really like is that it's organizing a challenge so people can be part of this development right now and together work on the full coverage of human body movement. This really speeds up the innovation. Talking about that challenge, in the next episode we talk about the two tracks in this year's Mayo Challenge, manipulation and locomotion. Yes, and we'll find out what you have to do in this year's challenge, what makes it so complex, and maybe you'll even get a tip or two that can be helpful. Ooh, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. This Mayo Challenge podcast is brought to you by the University of Twente's Robotics Center.